Japanese Empire toward collapse. The strength America wielded in its counteroffensive was the nightmare prophecy foretold by Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto and other far-sighted Japanese commanders who had long dreaded war with an industrial giant. As two great American fleets closed in on the Philippines in October, with General Douglas MacArthur's troops spearheading the ground assault on the Philippine island of Leyte, Japan activated its own last-ditch plan to forestall the inevitable defeat. It was unfolding now. Admiral Kurita was its linchpin. The show plan's audacity, orchestrating the movements of four fleets spread across thousands of miles of ocean and the land-based aircraft necessary to protect them, was both its genius and its potentially disastrous weakness. Admiral Jisaburo Ozawa, leading the remnants of Japan's once glorious naval air arm, would steam south from Japan with his aircraft carriers and try to lure the American fast carrier groups north, away from Leyte. With the U.S. flattops busy pursuing the decoy, two Japanese battleship groups would close on Leyte from the north and south and deal MacArthur a surprise, killing blow. Admiral Kurita had departed Brunei on October 22nd with his powerful center force, led by the Yamato and the Musashi, the two largest warships afloat, aiming to slip across the South China Sea, pass through San Bernardino Strait above Samar Island, and close on the Leyte beachhead from the north. Meanwhile, the southern force, led by Vice Admiral Shoji Nishimura and supported by Vice Admiral Kiyohide Shima, would cross the Sulu Sea and approach Leyte from the south through Surigao Strait. On the morning of October 25th, after their thousand-mile journey through perilous waters, Kurita's and Nishimura's battleship groups would rendezvous at nine o'clock a.m. off Lady Island's eastern shore, encircling the islands like hands around a throat. Then they would turn their massive guns on MacArthur's invasion force. Japan would at last win the decisive battle that had eluded it in the twenty-eight months since the debacle at Midway. Kurita's grandfather had been a great scholar of early Meiji literature. His father, too, had been a distinguished man of learning, author of a magisterial history of his native land. In the morning, Takeo Kurita, who preferred action to words, would make his own contribution. Off Samar Gathered around the radio set in the combat information center of the destroyer escort USS Samuel B. Roberts, they listened as a hundred miles to their south, their heavier counterparts in the Seventh Fleet encountered the first signs that the Japanese defense of the Philippines was underway. There was no telling precisely what their countrymen faced. It was something big, that much was for sure. And yet, until the scale of the far-off battle became too apparent to ignore, they would pretend it was just another mid-watch. By the routine indications, it was. They watched the radar scopes, and the scopes watched back, bathing the darkened compartment in cathode-green fluorescence, but revealing no enemy nearby. The Southwest Pacific slept. But something was on the radio and it put the lie to the silent night. 
The tactical circuit they were using to eavesdrop was meant for sending and receiving short-range messages from ship to ship. Officers used it to trade scuttlebutt with other vessels about what their radar was showing, about their course changes, about the targets they were tracking. By day, the high-frequency talk-between-ships signal reached only to the line of sight. But tonight, the Earth's atmosphere was working its magic, and the TBS broadcasts from faraway ships were propagating wildly, bouncing over the horizon to the small warship's vigilant antennae. They had come from small places to accomplish big things. As the American liberation of the Philippines unfolded, the Greenhorn enlistees who made up the majority of the Samuel B. Roberts's 224-man complement could scarcely have guessed at the scope of the drama to come. On the midnight to 4 a.m. midwatch, the Roberts's skipper, Lieutenant Commander Robert W. Copeland, his executive officer, Lieutenant Everett E. Bob Roberts, his communications officer, Lieutenant Tom Stevenson, and the young men under them in the little ship's combat information center, CIC, had little else to do than while away the night as the destroyer escort zigzagged lazily off the eastern coast of Samar with the twelve other ships of its task unit, the small, northernmost contingent of the sprawling Seventh Fleet. When morning warmed the eastern horizon, the daily routine would begin anew. Run through morning general quarters, then edge closer to shore with the six light aircraft carriers that were the purpose of the flotilla's existence, and launch airstrikes in support of the American troops advancing into Lady Island. With a mixture of pride and resignation, the men of the Seventh Fleet called themselves MacArthur's Navy. The unusual arrangement that placed the powerful armada under Army command was the product of the long-standing inter-service rivalry. The two service branches, each wildly successful, were beating divergent paths to Tokyo. From June 1943 to August 1944, MacArthur's forces had leapfrogged across the southern Pacific, staging 87 successful amphibious landings in a drive from Dutch New Guinea, and west by northwestward across a thousand-mile swath of islanded sea to the foot of the Philippine archipelago. Simultaneously, Admiral Chester W. Nimitz's fast carrier groups, accompanied by battle-hardened marine divisions, had driven across the Central Pacific. The perpetual motion of the American industrial machine had built a naval and amphibious arsenal of such staggering size, range, and striking power that the vast sea seemed to shrink around it. Our naval power in the Western Pacific was such that we could have challenged the combined fleets of the world, Admiral William F. Halsey, Jr., would write in his memoirs. The rival commanders had used it so well that the Pacific Ocean was no longer large enough to hold their conflicting ambitions. There was little of the Pacific left to liberate. Behind them lay conquered ground. Ahead, looking westward to the Philippines and beyond, was a short watery vista bounded by the shores of Manchuria, China, and Indonesia. Once the Far East had seemed a world away. Allied soldiers, marines, sailors, and airmen operating along the far Pacific Rim early in the war, the Flying Tigers in China, the U.S. Asiatic Fleet in Java, the marines on Wake Island, the defenders of Bataan and Corregidor, were consigned to oblivion so desperately far from home. 
Now that U.S. forces had crossed that world, the greatest challenge was to agree on how to deliver the inevitable victory as quickly as possible. For most of the summer of 1944, a debate had raged between Army and Navy planners about where to attack next. On July 21st, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, newly nominated at the Chicago Democratic Convention for a fourth presidential term, boarded the heavy cruiser Baltimore at San Diego and sailed to Oahu for a summit meeting of his Army and Navy leaders. In a sober discussion after dinner at the presidential residence in Honolulu, Nimitz and MacArthur repeated to their commander-in-chief the same arguments they had been espousing to the Joint Chiefs of Staff these many weeks. The Navy preferred an assault on Formosa, now Taiwan. MacArthur had other priorities. On a large map, FDR pointed to Mindanao Island, southernmost in the Philippine archipelago, and asked, Douglas, where do we go from here? Without hesitation, MacArthur replied, Lady, Mr. President, and then Luzon. It had been nearly three years since Bataan fell, and the American Caesar fled that haunted peninsula by night aboard a PT boat, arrived in Mindanao, and boarded a B-17 bomber for Australia to endure the exile of the defeated. On March 20, 1942, at a press conference at the Adelaide train station, he declared, The President of the United States ordered me to break through the Japanese lines for the purpose, as I understand it, of organizing the American offensive against Japan, a primary object of which is the relief of the Philippines. I came through, and I shall return. Torn from context and conflated to a national commitment, I shall return became MacArthur's call.